0: Good morning. morning. Welcome to Cooks Hill. I want to just say an extra welcome to those of you that are here, but you don't know why or you don't want to be. So I know that there are some of you, and I just want to say thank you for being here anyway. Thank you for showing up, even if you felt like you were drugged here um, by a friend or a family member. And if you're the friend or the family member dragging your friends here, I want to say thank you to you. We are glad you are here and uh, working to share the gospel alongside all of us. So, this morning is Easter Sunday. And it is so, so good to be worshiping Jesus together uh, with all of our voices raised. And um, if you are new to church, there are some components to a typical church service, and that's pretty much what we do here. We worship, we read through scripture, um, we hang out, the kids have a blast, and later they'll actually have a song for us, which I know some are very, very excited to share with you. But the story morning, we're going to talk about the resurrection. And Jesus has spent, if we put ourselves in his shoes, the time between last week and this week... The time between entering Jerusalem and going to the cross, he has flipped over tables. He has engaged religious leaders. He has met injustice with justice. He has addressed current issues. He has dealt with the climate of the day. He's hung out with his friends. He's given them instructions and spoke with them in depth. He's spent time alone. In that week, he cursed a fig tree. There are so many components of what has happened between... Between last Sunday and this Sunday and the death on the cross has now happened. Jesus' death has been announced. It's official. He's been placed in a tomb where the events of Holy Week have officially sort of come to a close. There's guards posted up at the doors of the tomb as they've grown increasingly concerned that there's a possibility that Jesus' friends might fake a resurrection and create some type of uh, political coup. And so there's this idea that the guards are. Now, protecting the space so that there cannot be any chance of a fake resurrection. Those who followed Jesus all the way to the cross have lingered there in sorrow, pain, varying degrees of shock, uncertainty is setting in. And that uncertainty begins to fill the silence after Jesus' death. It's a long and dark day. And there's no doubt that Jesus' friends are experiencing disappointments in the space where reality and expectation are about as far apart as they could get. It's been a week of violence, confusion, hurt emotion disassociation stress anxiety panic attacks and the disciples of jesus are labeled for their failures throughout the week in such memorable ways that if you've been in church before you know who i'm talking about we know judas as the betrayer of jesus we know peter as the denier of jesus we know thomas as the doubter of jesus The disciples have ended three years of moment by moment by moment walking closely day in and day out with Jesus. And they're ending all of it with what we know as these massive fail moments. Reminding us that hanging out with Jesus day in and day out doesn't exempt us from the ease of falling into Our own demise. But Saturday comes and it goes, and Sunday is the moment where we are reminded that very long and very dark days don't last forever, and Jesus doesn't leave people in their moments of deepest failures and greatest questions. And so here we pick up with the resurrection of Jesus after the Sabbath. As the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descending from heaven came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been raised, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. In the current Roman context, tombs were designed for entire families. And families were buried in somewhat of their own little pocket of the tomb that the entire family could be in. And so this phrase, come see the place where he lay, was very similar to saying, come inspect the little pocket that we put Jesus in in the tomb that is for a family. And because Jesus wasn't being buried with anyone else, the expectation was that the only body there was Jesus' body, and Jesus' body was now gone. It was very rare that you could find a tomb that was completely empty. In this case, it was. Verse 7, then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. This is my message for you. So they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came to him, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. At this point, Jesus is alive. And the women in fear and excitement are moving to begin sharing the news. But back in town, there's a story brewing. There's a plot that is beginning to be schemed. And after a week of violence and confusion and emotion and murder, the city leaders are now reeling from the reality that Jesus did as he said he would do. And now they're moving in the direction of protecting their own backside as they're about to look like the fraud. Verse 11, while they were going, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled the elders, they devised a plan to give a large sum of money to the soldiers, telling them, you must say his disciples came by night, And stole him away while you were asleep. If this comes back to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and we will keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and they did as they were directed. And this story is still told among the Jews to this day. It's the day that Jesus has risen. Excitement from one group of women is incredibly high, and fear for another is beginning to set in. The guards agree to a money exchange. For not just a risky lie, I mean, they could be punished pretty hefty for this type of lie, but also just not a very good lie. Like, they were supposed to convince everybody that a bunch of guards who were posted up at the most controversial and most likely to escape situation ever, and they all fell asleep. And they all slept so hard that nobody was going to hear a stone being rolled out of the way and the amount of people it would take to move the stone. I mean, they're agreeing to a lie that just doesn't seem all that easy to believe. But you know how life gets when emotions are high? you can pass off some things that may not otherwise be easy to believe and that is what happened here. And so the guards buy this lie, they sell this lie, and they move forward with that plan. And Matthew, who wrote this portion of the gospel, he wrote it potentially 8 to 30 years later. And so as he's writing this, he's saying they're still believing this lie this many years later. And in fact people today still believe that. So, this morning, Holy Week has been crazy. Jesus has died, the death was announced, and now he has risen. And where I want to land is in talking about the disciples, his friends' reaction to the resurrection. And how their expectations of Jesus caused them to behave following his resurrection. Because I would imagine for many of us in this room, if not all of us, all of us in this room, the resurrection comes with different expectations of our own. And that expectation may simply be that you don't think Jesus was alive in the first place and the story of the Bible is totally made up. Or that expectation may be that you believe the resurrection occurred, but it means very little to you. Or that expectation may be that the resurrection changes every single thing about your entire life. We all have expectations of the resurrection. And we all bring them with us to resurrection Sunday. John 20 says, When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. This is said so simply. The disciples are in a house, and Jesus comes in. It's like this casual environment But it's the first day of the week. Jesus rose from the dead yesterday. The week prior, one disciple had committed suicide. Another disciple is currently MIA. At this exact moment, they're fearing for their lives at an extensive level. And they don't know where one of their friends is. They know that people are out to kill them. They know that there's this story brewing that they faked a resurrection and they stole the body of Jesus. And there is a lot of fear that is happening. They're uncertain of what the ripple effect of the guard's lie will be on their life and the act of stealing that they're being accused of, that they didn't actually do. They're grieving, they're anxious, they're missing friends, they're missing Jesus, they're missing what they know what is normal. They are filled with fear, and I'm sure they're in a state of total panic. So it makes sense that the disciples are locked up in a house, and I'd imagine it's more than just a little lock. It's dead bolted, and it is barred. And there is no way that anyone is getting in. And you know those times when you're home alone and 90% of the time you don't even hear those noises, but it's that one night where it's dark and it's late and you're home alone or whatever's happening and every noise all of a sudden seems suspicious or something happens and you're like, ooh, is that, does that happen? You're like, oh yeah, the fridge makes that noise 18 times a night. But just this one time I was like, it's not a fridge. You know that feeling? They're in that room and they're listening for every sound and it's a traditional noise. The toilet flushes, probably not then, but you know. And they are in this space where they're like, every noise is a possible threat. And somebody might break in and kill them. I mean, I've had those moments in my own house. They're like, what's that noise? So here they are. Panic. Fear. And now we know why Jesus' first words were, peace be with you. Because he walked in and was like, "Ooh, what is happening here? Peace, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Jesus anticipated that they would struggle to believe without seeing. So he shows up and he says, take some of my peace that I'm offering you you need it and you can see that it's me so he shows them his scars and they begin to rejoice goes on then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord Jesus said to them again peace be with you as the father has sent me so I send you now this may seem like the perfect end to the story but I can't let you go yet, because that would be a pastoral sin. You have to stay here for longer than that. This may seem like the perfect end to the story. Jesus has returned. They're rejoicing. They saw his scars. They knew it was him. And the end. But what we will read later is that it only took a week before the disciples were barred up in a house again. Now remember that disciple that was missing, that MIA disciple, the one we commonly know as Thomas. Well, Thomas wasn't with them during the first time that Jesus came into the house. Verse 24 says, but Thomas, who is called the twin, one of the 12 was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now we see this moment, the I won't believe in less moment, as the failure that forever marked Thomas as the doubter. But put yourself in Thomas' shoes. There's a story circulating that the disciples stole the body and they faked a resurrection. And that they somehow got in and made up this big story. And Thomas wasn't with them. Thomas wasn't around at the time. He may not know what they did. He's aware of the intensity of grief and emotion and the feeling of having gone all the way to the cross with Jesus. And then him potentially not rising again. It's a week with a lot of hurt. And what happens when we've been hurt is that our brains naturally produce a feeling of distrust. And that feeling is designed to protect us. It kicks our brains into modes where we're protecting ourselves from future hurt. And Thomas is in a space where he followed Jesus closely, moment by moment, up until this time. And now, he could be labeled as a fool forever. He could get killed for associating with Jesus in the first place. He could lose his friends. He's already lost Jesus. And the hurt, combined with the distance from Jesus has shifted his brain into protection mode and distrust is evident. And every single one of us has a place. where, out of hurt, we move into distrust. And we say, unless I see, I won't believe. Now, that may not be your exact statement, but every single one of us has a statement similar to that. It might be, unless I see physical healing, I won't believe in God. Unless God changes my situation, then I won't believe. Unless I can pay my bills, I won't believe. So what is your unless I see statement? Verse 26, a week later, His disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Now here we are again. It's been a week since they've seen Jesus, and guess what? They're hurt, and the distance has led them back to a place of distrust. They've barred the doors again. They're filled with fear again, they're hiding out again, and Thomas, who didn't believe any of it in the first place, is now with them, and Jesus, no shock to us again, says, peace be with you. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hand. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Distrust showed up for Thomas in the resurrection. But even if you're in a place where you've known Jesus your whole life, and you believe the resurrection, you will still get hurt. And out of those places of hurt, there will be distance. And distance combined with hurt will cause distrust. For all of us in our relationship with Jesus, the combination of hurt and distance produces distrust. And it may show up in ways that we don't expect. Hurt plus distance from Jesus. And we find ourselves attributing the amazing things that God is doing to coincidence. Hurt plus distance from Jesus, and you begin to view God as this dictator in the sky who's mad at you and just wants to tell you what to do. Hurt plus distance from Jesus, and you begin to think that there's no point in personal devotion as it hasn't gotten you as far spiritually as you had hoped. And the assumption that we make when hurt and distance combine is that God is upset or angry with us. Why do we call Thomas Doubting Thomas? Because our hurt and our distance is inserted into this story. So we view this as a massive fail moment that somehow made Jesus mad. We assume that these words from Jesus, put your finger in here and see my hand. Reach out your hand and touch my side where the scars are. We see those statements as these sort of angry, intense statements as if t- Jesus was saying, "Get your act together. I'm right here. Like, can't you see me? Like, don't you don't you see what's happening?" And Jesus is sort of like angry and intense, and we view this story that way. As Jesus is saying, "Come on, pull it together. I'm right here. Like, can't you tell? Can't you see? Like, what are you missing? What more could you want?" That's how we view this story. That's why he's dubbed Doubting Thomas. And that's why we use the phrase Doubting Thomas as a little bit of an insult to people who are having a hard time believing. But there's no context in this story where Jesus was ever mad. In fact, he praised Thomas for pursuing answers until he believed. And when we read about Thomas' situation, we're inserting our own personal perception of Jesus, what our hurt and our distance have inserted into the story. Because Thomas was a disciple of Jesus, he was a close friend of Jesus. And the only other context we have in scripture about Thomas, every time he's brought up, is that Thomas asked a lot of questions. But he believed deeper as a result. In this moment, Jesus is not angry. Jesus responds with empathy, not just for Thomas in the moment, but for those of us that wouldn't be able to touch Jesus. In that moment, not only is he empathetic towards Thomas, he's empathetic towards us. Saying, what about the people who won't get to touch the scars? See, Jesus didn't just give a space for disciples of all types and personalities to follow him. He met them inside of their personality makeup. And after Jesus rose from the dead, he would go on to prove that he loved, cared, and continued to meet them with what they needed to believe. Jesus had room for the naturally inquisitive and easily skeptical follower, and he graciously met him with what he needed to believe. Jesus had room for the fear-filled disciple who denied ever knowing him in the first place, and he met him with what he needed to be forgiven. Jesus had room for the women who waited overnight in their own sorrow and pain, hoping and trusting that Jesus would rise. After the resurrection... Jesus comes back to his disciples, and instead of bringing up their mistakes, talking about how they don't believe right away, or condemning them for responding in the human way, he actually tasks them with responsibility. In the kingdom of God, our mistakes don't make us unusable. It's through our mistakes and our willingness to wrestle till we believe that God demonstrates his grace in our lives. And while today we primarily just talked about Thomas's interaction with Jesus, commonly known as the Doubting Thomas moment, this story isn't about doubt. It's not about Thomas failing miserably. It's about believing and how Jesus meets everyone within what they need to believe. It's about what it looks like to believe from different perspectives and different personalities. And you may be in a place where you are the inquisitive and naturally skeptical believer. And you're wrestling with what to believe about what you've heard about God. Or maybe you've believed the resurrection, but you're in a place where what you thought you knew about following Jesus isn't what you're learning now. Or you may be in a place where you've loved Jesus all along and you're struggling to understand why your kids don't. Or maybe you've ended up in a space where the hurt plus the distance from Jesus has created distrust. And while you used to believe easily that Jesus had your back, you're not so sure anymore. We're going to sing another song as we close this morning. And I want to extend to you the invitation to take Jesus, to take this morning, and to put your personality on the table. Because what you may have heard up until this point is that you need to look, be, act, or do a certain way in order to meet with Jesus. And if we look at the disciples' response to Jesus rising, they looked, they beed, they were, whatever personality makeup they had, they brought their fear, they brought their anxiety, they brought their naturally inquisitive, they brought their easy-to-not-believe sort of space. They brought it all. And Jesus responded with grace and love and empathy. And nowhere in these responses was Jesus angry or upset or mad. And so I want to invite you this morning during the next song to take your personality to Jesus. To take the things that you are naturally going to do or not do in this space to Jesus and give him an opportunity to love you in who you are. There's a beautiful invitation at the very end of the book of John here. And it's an invitation as much as it is a challenge and a promise. John ends his telling of the gospel with a note on the entire purpose of why he wrote the story he wrote. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but they are written so that you may come to believe. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. This morning, the other challenge for you. One, take your personality to Jesus and invite him to love you and to show you the grace that he showed all of the disciples and all of their reactions to him. And the second thing I want to invite you to do is that as you leave today, not yet, as you leave today, we have a copy the book of John for everybody. And the thing that this story says at the end is that there are miracles written in scripture so that we might believe because Jesus had empathy for us in the moment when Thomas was there and he said, how will they believe without being able to see? And so I want to challenge you in the next song to take your personality to Jesus, take who he's made you, and invite a conversation with him and then before you leave today to take a copy of the book of John